this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sat down with Janet Giazzo of Harvard University, where she's the Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies and an Associate Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs. Janet's important and groundbreaking research has concentrated on Tibetan and South Asian cultural and intellectual history, especially medicine, autobiography, and gender. But in this episode, we focused on a topic she's also been teaching with and working more intensely on in recent years. This is post-humanism and animal ethics. Janet was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we talked with her on January 7th, 2021, one day after the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol building in Washington. So if we were a little low sounding, well, it was just the deep sadness about the state of the world shining through. Nevertheless, we had a fantastic conversation. We're so excited about this work. So please enjoy listening to my conversation with Janet Giazzo. Hi, Janet. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here with us today. So my first question is pretty straightforward. Where and what do you teach? Well, okay, so I'm at uh, Harvard Divinity School. I, I teach in the Divinity School, and I, I teach in Faculty of Arts and Science at Harvard. I'm officially the Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies, so that's my um, official post. But I'm an expert in, uh, or not an expert, I'm a would-be expert or scholar in uh, Tibetan studies. So that's been my specialty. But I teach across the board in Buddhism. Briefly, what was your path or trajectory to becoming interested in Buddhism first, and then also your path in academia? My path in, in becoming interested in Buddhism was probably a kind of predisposition to a certain kind of thinking when I was a kid. And uh, when I first encountered Buddhist ideas, I found them very, very um, familiar and very attractive, especially ideas, you know, the first noble truth, the the truth of suffering. I, I was kind of, I had a tendency to notice that in the world, maybe more than my friends or my parents who were a little bit alarmed that I was asking questions about that. Uh, but um, I think when I was in high school, I read some J.D. Salinger's, probably the first place I ever heard of Buddhism from J.D. Salinger. And, um, but, uh, basically when I was in college at a university, uh, uh, Boston university, and I was basically majoring in math, uh, I made some friends who knew about Buddhism and started talking about it. And then told me about, uh, this, uh, monastery in New Jersey, where there was a lot of Tibetan teachers and that you could go down there and listen to, uh, public talks. And so I went once with a bunch of friends. We drove down to uh, New Jersey from Boston, and I was very, very captivated by these Tibetan teachers. And I decided to actually leave my program at BU and start studying Tibetan because I was very, um, you know, determined that I could speak to them directly as opposed to through a translator. And so I spent the, I followed one of the teachers out to California soon after that. And I was really studying Buddhist practice and Buddhist doctrine and Tibetan language. But I also did want to go back to school and finish my degree. I was fully intending to be a math major, but I got into Berkeley, um, ended up instead of majoring in math, uh, by sort of like an accident, 
ended up majoring in religion and went into the Buddhist studies track in the graduate program at Ber- Berkeley, which was just emerging. And um, I, I never intended to, you know, major in Buddhism at school. It was more of a personal thing, but um, I just did it. Those were that was like the the end of the '60s and the beginning of the '70s when we didn't think about practical um, outcomes of things very much. We just you know, <laughs> went with the flow, sort of thing. And so I got into a PhD program in Buddhist studies at Berkeley. That's a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then we're also here today, the, the focus we wanted to give to this is your interest also in animal ethics and post-humanism. Can you tell us also where that interest began for you? Okay. Well, that interest also begins actually really when I'm young, very, very young. People in my family, but me and maybe more than anyone, have a great love of animals. We just love animals. We love cats in particular, but we love dogs. We love we love every animal. So this is just something that comes like totally naturally to me. You know, I sh- I should say that once I was in California, I had a lot of interaction with Tibetan teachers. So not only at the university, but I spent time living with one very famous teacher in Seattle, Deshung Rinpoche. And also the teachers that were in California, Lama Kunga, and um, many other, Kalu Rinpoche. And then eventually I went on this program to India and also um, spent time with a lot of Tibetan teachers there. And I was very much moved by, you know, the theme of compassion, which was what Tibetan teachers usually stress. And compassion for animals is definitely a big part of it. So I've always, you know, had a great love and great compassion for animals. I like to communicate with them, talk with them, play with them, whatever. The fact that I'm working on animal ethics right now is the privilege that I have at this certain stage in my career. And the fact that I've, you know, kind of, quote unquote, proved myself in Buddhist studies, you know, um, getting to the upper ranges of the, you know, career span and maybe don't having worked very hard on a couple of Buddhist studies projects that were very detailed and had a million footnotes and really tracked down the sources. I wanted to do something a little bit more expressive and creative and also something that really means a huge amount to me. I've decided to try to write out some of my feelings and insights about animals in a book that could somehow help to convince the world that we need to regard animals much higher than we do and to treat them better. So it's coming out of, you know, I I would say my love of animals that I was just born with, but um, it was very much encouraged by the Buddhist teachings of compassion. You've alluded to your past work already. And so for our listeners who may not know, though they probably do, um, that's work on biography and autobiography, right? And in the Tibetan tradition, and then also on Tibetan medicine. Do you see the theme of animal ethics and posthumanism developing in those kernels as well? It is in the following way, which is pretty clear to me. I mean, in both of my projects, my main projects, uh, excuse me, um, uh, so autobiography and also on medicine, there was an emphasis on what I just simply call the human as opposed to the ideal. 
So the thing that's interesting about autobiography, especially the one that I worked on, was that it, 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 although it was very, you know, visionary and had all kinds of magical things and amazing things happen in it, it also was very honest about failings and realities of the protagonist. That's the famous Jigme Lingpa. I have a attraction to, you know, something I could just simply call the real as opposed to the ideal. I was attracted to autobiography because it, it gave you a sense of the real person, not the idealized guru, even though he is amazing there as well. And medicine is very much, it was a theme for me. Medicine as an academic subject in Tibetan history was very much influenced by academic style in Buddhism. But at the same time, it's also different than Buddhism because it's dealing with physical realities of human beings on the ground. It's not dealing with in, enlightenment. In, in those ways, the theme of dealing with, you know, the everyday real on the ground stuff, I think, continues into animals, which part of what I'm trying to do is set aside all the mythology and all the kind of ideology that we have and try to see animals for what they are. That's sort of a theme that does unite my in interests. And what are your favorite courses to teach now, like when you are given the choice? I did develop two different courses on animals, which both of which went extremely well. Um, and I mean, in, just in the sense of that it was very enthusiastically received by the students. But last semester, I taught a course on women and gender in Buddhism. And so that wasn't about animals at all. I'm teaching a course on meditation next semester, Buddhist meditation. And uh, we'll see how that goes. I've never done a course that was only on med like all the traditions of Buddhist meditation. And but I do also think that of the in the moment we're in, doing a course about Buddhist meditation is surely a good thing for. Well, that's what I was thinking. You know, we all need to do. I don't care whether you're Buddhist or whatever you are, but uh, everyone needs to know how to do a little bit of stress reduction, mindfulness, or you know something like that. And I have to say, the other thing that I've I've been sort of shocked by. Um, in my own little household here up in Toronto, Canada, is that as as school shifted online for my own children, they now like each have mindfulness and meditation as part of their regular daily curriculum in school. Oh, really? oh, good for them. Yeah. I mean, amazing. They're yeah. seven and ten. And but wow, right? Like it's it's also sort of stunning to me that this is actually, I mean, I found that stuff, but I but it wasn't through my formal education in primary. Right. Yeah. Cool, right. So yeah. um, the fact that they're already being given this right, <laughs> as their like normal curriculum through the Toronto District School Board is. Do they like doing it? You know, it's funny. I mean, they they consider it kind of boring, really, if you ask them, except they also do it like they, it's actually really normalized and it started really small. Right. So it's like five minutes. And yeah, well, it's a skill they may find themselves drawing on later on in life. And they may be really grateful that they know how to do it. Yeah. And they can build on it. Totally. And I did exactly. I had the thought of like, wow, what a different world it'll be when they're all adults and when there's a generation of adults that can do this. I mean, right. Or are able to at least have some language around what's going on in there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk about your courses on animal ethics and post-humanism. Which of the two do you want to talk about first? Oh, they're both the same. Both courses are about post-humanism and animal ethics, but they're both about po both post-humanism and animal ethics are connected for me. Okay. So can you explain that to us? What is, beginning with kind of what is post-humanism? Okay. So post-humanism is, it's a movement 
in humanity, social sciences, and the sciences, I think, to recognize that, you know, what we call the Anthropocene, which means that era of the Earth's, planet Earth's history that has been deeply and overly influenced by human presence and human activity. So that humans have left and changed the planet in huge, 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 huge ways. And this goes back, you know, pretty much throughout the existence of the human species. But it's, you know, obviously multiplying and accelerating to the point that it's a disaster on the planet um, and climate change and all very much attributable to humans. Post-humanism is an attempt to ratchet down the centrality of humans in our thought, in our discourse, in our um, vision of what's important, and to decenter the human. So in the sciences, for example, there's a huge turn to observation of animals. Posthumanism wants to include animals, and it also has another side, which I don't understand as well, which is to include machines. So people like Donna Haraway, you know, who recognize that there's not a clear-cut distinction between humans and machines or technology, but, you know, that there's like a kind of interconnectedness between all these types of knowing or intelligence or, you know, because you have humanism and the European Enlightenment, and you have it in Buddhism as well, that, you know, humans are the privileged species. They're the most important and they're the best. Post-humanism is to call that into question, to learn about what else is going on besides the human and to take it seriously and value it. One way of thinking about it is the way that I think about it, which is for me, post-humanism is to stop assuming that humans are the most important and the best species on our planet. I actually do not believe that. I'm not sure that I would say humans are the most valuable or even that humans are the most intelligent. It might be true, but I don't know. There's so many questions that come up in that. Western philosophy, again, and also many forms of other philosophies in the world, not all, have insisted that you know humans are far superior to any other sentient being and that animals are, are dumb. You know, you've had many intelligent people like Descartes and uh, all kinds of other people thinking that animals, they, they don't have any consciousness. They, they don't have any subjectivity. They don't even, they, they don't suffer. So we can do whatever they, we want to them and we can abuse them. Recent research, you know, has, has been rejecting that as we're finding out more and more like really amazing things about animals. And the more we find out, the more these old assumptions have to be uh, reconsidered. But, you know, habits die really hard. And, and if we were really to consider what animals want and what they would like the world to be like, might be almost as important or as important as what humans want, we would have to change things dramatically. Yeah, it's a very radical proposition because we also are, re we regularly have been told and tell ourselves how important human civilization is and and how wonderful and how brilliant and even though we have a lot of problems we also have these wonderful you know art and music and philosophy and civilization and technology and we're the only ones who can do that right like is the, the story that we like so well that's right exactly and so that definition of post-humanism 
decentering the human. Is there a particular writer or theorist that you're really attracted to who articulates that? And also, especially in that difference from the way posthumanism is articulated in terms of art- artificial intelligence? I'm not sure what the Bible would be on posthumanism. Some of the interesting people are Donna Haraway. There is a really good overview of posthumanism. Well, Rosa Bridotti is one of them. Rosie Bridotti. Each chapter is on how posthumanism is playing out in different fields. So like anthropology, sociology, you know, the hard sciences, um, you know, literature, uh, feminism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Deepesh Chakrabarti is somebody at University of Chicago who's a really interesting guy who's kind of tangentially related to Buddhist studies, who's been talking about the posthuman now and also the... Um, Indian writer Amitav Ghosh has a um, book called The Great Derangement, which is uh, a, a, an amazing study of how literature has reflected where we are in the Anthropocene. There's tons of anthropology. What's that guy at McGill? Um, it's called um, How Forests Think. Oh, Eduardo Cohn? Yeah, Eduardo Cohn. People who look at material culture and who look at, you know, the exchange of material goods. So there, there's so many of them. So I, I see here that you also use Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter. Jane Bennett is one of the sort of earlier people in this. Yeah. She's, and she's written Vibrant Matter, A Political Ecology of Things. I tried to do a course. I mean, it, I did do a course. I didn't just try. I actually did it. Um, <laughs> but it was last year. So did that really happen? Um, but it was around matter like taking and we organized the whole class with different materials each week and tried to understand like clay from clay and and then we wrote at the end or had them write these um like biographies from the position of an object oh really <laughs> that's cool yeah telling it as it's as itself right i mean people in um animal studies uh, franz de wall is one of them who's done stuff a lot of stuff with chimps uh i'm reading a fantastic book right now called beyond words Carl, Carl Safina. It's about elephants, wolves, and killer orca whales. And it talks about how they communicate and their, their intelligence, you know, without using words or language. Uh, fantastic book. There's a great naturalist writer, Barry Lopez, who just died recently. And he has a book called Of Wolves and all, all of his writings. Uh, Robert McFarland, all these people who are looking at the planet, like the geological planet are also in the post-humanist camp. You know, anyone who's looking at things not from the human perspective. Have you seen uh, on Netflix, <laughs> My Octopus Teacher? I haven't seen that, actually. I, I should watch that. I, I have a problem sometimes watching these things because I feel so bad. You know, it's, I, octopuses in particular are so amazing and they're so different than us. And the fact that we would, ca- you know, I feel so horrible that we capture them and put them in tanks and just drive them insane. And I just feel so guilty and horrible that I can't bear to even watch this thing. Well, the good news is that octopus stays in the ocean the whole time. Oh, but, oh it does. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. My oh, octopus okay. teacher, he goes and the guy goes and swims and with an octopus like every day for a year, over a year she lives. And it's so it's amazing. Like he actually develops a relationship with this octopus. And he did, a, I think, a pretty good job of not actually overly humanizing her like she's not yeah. him right at mm-hmm. all right. but he he gains her trust by going to swim every day but yeah when i taught the class i did a fair amount of readings 
from um, animal ethics. Like I read Peter Singer, you know, the classic work. And I read this woman. um, Animal Liberation, Peter Singer. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Christine Korsgaard, who's a philosopher at Harvard, who wrote this book on she she takes Kantian ethics and she and she shifts it to take into account animals. Alice Crary wrote a, is a philosopher. So these are kind of analytic philosophers. And, and I've been reading phenomenology as well, like people who, not um, Merleau-Ponty exactly, but people who base their work on Merleau-Ponty and apply it to animals. So as you were already uh, hinting, one of the problems and the critiques of this kind of work that other philosophers bring up is that we anthropomorphize when we talk about animals. There's this famous essay by um, Thomas Nagel, who claims that, you know, I can try to imagine what it's like to be a bat, but I'll never have access to that because I'm a human. Saying that anything that I would think is, must be touched by my being a human. And I think that there's a real flaw in that logic because it assumes that everything about me is human. And I don't think that's true. What is human is the way we define what human is. There's a lot about me that's animal. There's a lot about me that's matter. You know, there's a lot of, about, of me that's a bacteria. And it's not the case that the category of human governs everything that I do. And, and again, the, the whole definition of what the category of human is is up for grabs and everybody defines it differently. And I think that we have a lot of access to uh, animals' feelings, just as we have access to each other's as humans. Um, you know, you can also say that I'll never know what it's like to be you, and you're a human, and you're a female, and you're in my field, and and so we have a lot in common. We're both ac- academics, you know, et cetera. But, you know, I still don't know what it's like to be you, and I don't understand everything that you're going to say to me, and I can get it wrong, and I it'll be colored by my projections, but I think... There's kinds of disciplines, close observation and slow looking where you can allow the thing to speak to you as opposed to you projecting your ideas onto the other, allowing the other to speak to you. And one cultivates those skills and it's very, very possible. So on that, allowing that other to speak to you, how do you do this with students? Because first of all, it sounds really hard. Right. Like it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell in a culture and in a society and in, a, in, bo- in these bodies where we are really good at telling ourselves how important we are and how important the human stuff is. So how do you do it? How do you hook students and bring them into like being with animals in the classroom and thinking with animals? I thought about this. And the, the fact of the matter is that the Internet is full of fantastic footage that various uh, non-professionals have captured and professionals have captured in the wild or in people's homes or all kinds of contexts. So I have a huge array of videos, some of them quite short, which show all kinds of stuff. And these were the source of joy and pleasure. And we would have so much fun just simply watching it. One of my favorite ones, uh, just to give you some examples, are like, for example, there's a thing which I never knew about because I'm a city girl and I grew up in the city and I've always lived pretty much in a city. 
that when cows are raised and in very cold climates, the farm, cow farmers bring the, all the cows in during the winter because it's really, really cold. And they spend a few, the coldest months in the barn. And when they are let out in the spring, um, it's known to be this wonderful event. And lots of people from the area will come to watch because when the farmers let the cows out of the barn, the cows like take one or two steps. Like, you know, there's like 60 cows coming out of the barn. And as soon as they realize that they're outside, they, they start jumping in the air and dancing and running around. And, and what's also hilarious is, is that calves who have just been born, who never have been outside, immediately recognize that this is, there's grass here, there's blue sky, like it's really beautiful. And you can see them celebrating and, and you can see the joy in their body. I mean, and it's not possible to watch that without smiling and actually tears coming to your eye, basically. You know, you can see dogs playing with with each other. You can see a, a lot of interspecies stuff, like dogs forming uh, friendships with like a deer, like a deer who comes to somebody's yard and they start playing ball with with like the the, the people's dog and they play together. There's this amazing video where these people saw like a kitten on their backyard, and they saw that the kitten was being fed by some crow. And the crow was like going around catching worms and giving it to this kitten because the kitten was starving. And then they became the best of friends and the kitten and the, and the crow would like fight and play and roll around and the kitten would keep its claws in. Can you believe this? And there's so many other kind of amazing kinds of things. So I would always have like three or four videos. We would watch them over and over again. We, we, we would analyze, first of all, why it made us so happy to watch these things, because these, for some reason, they, these things give joy. And that's one of my questions. Why does it give so much joy to watch that? Why do humans love animals so much? I mean, an humans do horrible things to animals, but they also, most humans and most children, children adore animals. Why? Why? Why do we love animals often more than humans? And and then we would try to isolate. So we would do lots of research on those videos and like stop the video and say, oh, you see the way the dog has lifted its tail here and it's and it's indicating this kind of thing. So that actually was, I would say, the real animating factor. That and the other thing were my own stories of me and my cats, and I have plenty of those, or something that happened to me, you know, when I saw this or that animal or somebody who I know who had, you know, some kind of encounter. And I think part of it is I myself get very excited about these things. The other part of it is that the students who take the class are kind of already converted. Most of them, you know, they already love animals too. So it's, but they appreciate the opportunity to explore, you know, what it is about animals they love and what their love consists in and how they got it, how to cultivate it more and how it might affect our practices in the future. Where has that led in your classes? Where do you, where do you and your students feel by the end? Have there been ideas that come out of this from them or from you about what we should be doing better? Yeah, well, there's so many ideas and the question is how to implement them. You know, so um, that's a huge, huge question. First of all, the kids in my class, I got people from the law school who are working on animal law. I got, you know, undergraduates taking, doing biology and learning how to 
create laboratory created meat, you know, so for example, for experiments, which is a quickly developing area where they're realizing, first of all, that experimentation on animals actually doesn't prove too much for humans anyway, and they can create artificial livers and hearts to do experiments on instead of using actual animals. People who are involved in the sanctuary movement or, you know, green agriculture you know, vegans and stuff like that, you know, because I, I teach mostly master's students who have a sort of professional goal, but actually, but the undergrads were also great in this. But the number of things to be done is enormous. The worst thing of all is uh, factory farming for meat and for skin. I didn't show any of those videos. I can't bear to see them. But the way that animals are treated and they live their whole life is just the most horrifying, sad, you know, tragic, hell-like thing. My contribution, I feel, is primarily cultivating the sentiments, giving the language, um, giving the um, kind of prestige of that, talking about the, the value of animal feelings is not a stupid thing to do, or it's not a weak need thing to do. And just hoping that that will seep into the culture more and more. But I know that that's not the only solution at all. I'm writing a book on this also, and the book is really hard to write. And I'm trying to face this problem like sheep farmers. There's this one guy, the Herdy Shepherd. He wrote a book and he's in Ireland, I think. And he's got, you know, this wonderful, you know, centuries old practice. And the sheep live by themselves in the mountains most of the year. And then they shear them twice a year. And the sheep are very happy, but in in the end, they sell them to the to the slaughterhouse, and they love the sheep. They they know the sheep, they love the sheep, but they still can do it. And there's plenty of people who love animals, but who eat meat. And I, I'm not a full vegetarian yet. I haven't been able to. And so it doesn't guarantee that if you love animals, that you will never slaughter an animal again. But certainly, we can limit certain kinds of things. You know, like for example buying anything with with fur and that's one thing we could get rid of like this we can get rid of zoos we can get rid of circuses we can institute um practices you know more laws which are happening we can also educate people this is another thing on how to raise their pets better like a lot of people do not know how to raise a cat or a dog and they chain the dog up and the cat never goes outside and, and they just infantilize it. And, you know, there's ways to keep your pets happy. And also all kinds of sports, like these snowboard, snow sledding, whatever things that go all over the landscape and mess up all kinds of, you know, environments and animals, shelters and, and, and all sorts of stuff. You know, do we deserve to have thrills at every moment in our lives? Or do we restrain ourselves, really recognize we're not the only important people and, and you don't get to like trample all over everything else and all go to like on the some safari, you know, with 50 tourists who are, you know, walking all over the place and, and especially hunting for God's sakes and, and stuff like that. There's so many things that we do that are impinging that we could stop. Going back a little bit to the teaching with this, so dealing with these videos with your students. Also with videos that where you don't have a lot of control over how they've been produced or or who made them or whatever, do you guys have to talk about like questions of animal manipulation or like representation, those kind of issues? 
sure. But I try to choose things that are really less manipulated and less sort of staged. There exists a huge, huge amount of either footage that people who have left cameras, you know, in in the wild, or like, for example, there's these amazingly wonderful footage of like a, a whole bunch of dolphins, like maybe 30 dolphins. And this is from a helicopter flying above them. You can see they're having fun. All they're doing, they, they, they line up in this huge line and they wait for a wave. And then they all simultaneously jump over the wave. They're not fishing. They're not hunting. They're having fun. But they're doing this on the, their own. So this, this has not been manufactured by humans. And animals recognize humans. There's, there's this one thing of footage where some, some people are in some speedboat out on the ocean or something, and they've got like a ball like that they're playing with on their boat, and they drop it in the water. And a beluga whale pops up, gets the ball, and throws it to the people on the thing. And then the guy throws it back to the whale, and then they're having this batting thing. The beluga whale never saw a human being before. They immediately understand this person likes to play like we do. And they and they start a game with them. I, I mean, the the range of animal behavior. We're just like we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the complexity of animal behavior and kinds of intelligence. What surprising outcomes have there been, and has there been anything in these classes that you feel has failed, like something that didn't work either as an assignment or as a discussion topic? Or well, trying to work Buddhism in was hard. Right. Okay. Tell me more. Why? Not the compassion part. That's easy. But I was trying to use Buddhist epistemology about types of seeing, types of perception, and also Buddhist meditation theory on ways of training yourself. But I was trying to use Buddhist principles as ways of describing animal behavior. And that was hard to get across. They didn't follow me. And that was also because the large majority of the students in the class did not have a background in Buddhist studies. But even those who did um, were not seeing the parallels. And I, I think I just needed to spend a whole bunch more time on it. But, you know, one of the things I learned in graduate school, and I'm going to be teaching in this class on meditation, is, you know, the whole difference between shamatha and vipassana or constant calming, concentration, meditation, and insight. And insight happens in a flash calming or um, uh, practice has to be done over and over again. It's like a re repetitive, you know, um, habituation of certain bodily kind of habits. And that distinction is very uh, provocative to me. And I'm using it in the chapter that I'm writing. And I also try to use it in class to talk about two ways of training ourselves to be more attentive to animals taking the Buddhist principle and translating it into ways of looking or ways of, of observing animals or even the way that animals themselves figure stuff out has been, I probably wasn't as clear and I probably hadn't thought it through enough. I have at least two primary purposes that I'm after. One of them for humans to learn how to see how interesting animals are. So not look at them as like a dumb cow standing in the middle of the field, but see what's going on with the cow and, and start to see the micro changes in the cow. But the other one is for humans to learn from 
the way animals are to actually enhance their experience, their, their own experience in their lives. So in other words, to pick up and develop maybe skills that we already have as, because we're, we are animals as well, we've backgrounded them. We, we don't pay attention to them. We don't cultivate them. We, we cultivate the cognitive, you know, rational parts of ourselves. So we're, we're both emulating certain dimensions of animal life, and we're also learning how to look at animals as an object. And that's also a distinction I don't think that I made clearly enough or that I really thought through what exactly I'm trying to do with that. But that's really tough to do, too. I mean, that's I mean, we're teaching in universities where I mean, the practice of university classes is also about like culti- cultivating intellectual rigor and critical thinking and language. And so we're we're so invested in the skill set and the cultivation of those thi- of those practices, too, that it's also then it's a radical suggestion to to talk about and then maybe possibly do like embodiment or you know, what am I if I'm not just this brain thing, but also valued for my, ma- like, my material properties? Well, you know, it's continuous with what's been called feminist pedagogy. So even the effort, like, forget about animals, but the effort in feminist pedagogy to break down the authoritarian distinction between the teacher and the students, to cultivate in the classroom a kind of joy and also uh, sharing, so laughter in the classroom. It's not like we're getting up and acting like animals, but we are going diagonally or sort of horizontally as opposed to vertically, which we're already doing in academia to a certain extent. And I think, and feminist pedagogy is one of the really interesting places where it's been developed even more we don't only use our rational minds. We, we, we never are only using our rational minds. We always are embodied. It's only the question of what we can, you know, foreground and be aware of and so on. So any kind of mixing that up is going to help you along the way. And, and as I was saying before, just empowering people to tell, like, tell a story of what happened this morning with, with your cat in your apartment. And making that an okay thing to be happening at Harvard Divinity School is already a thing. It's, it's going to stick with them, you know, that, you know, because people come in there with this sense of like, oh, I'm not allowed to talk about this kind of thing. You know, people have the idea still, you're not allowed to use the first person. Like when you write, you're not allowed to use the first person in academic writing. That's still around. It's like ridiculous. I actually have had classes where I'm like, please only use the first person. I don't want anything else. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But that's just one step. One of my principles for this class is like, I'm not expecting perfection. I'm not expecting to get all the way there. Just a couple of steps. That's a lot already. One of the few good things I've heard from many people about online is that there are many more pets in the classroom. Yes, that's right. So how has the switch switch to online been for you? It hasn't been too bad because I I don't have really large classes. So you know, my experience is you can fit 25 faces on a Zoom page. So if the class is 25 or less, you got, you have everyone there. I establish eye contact with the student, not, not eye contact because that, there's a problem with that, but I can read body language of students on Zoom. You know, so I try as much as possible. You know, I, as, as a teacher, I have worked my whole life to break down my position of authority and to, and to lift up theirs. Because I can always tell 
when I'm in the classroom in person, but I can tell on Zoom too, I, I can tell when someone has a question and they're about to raise their hand, but they haven't raised their hand yet. This actually has a name in Buddhist philosophy called uh, Kaya Vijnapti. Vaj Vijnapti and Kaya Vijnapti. You can tell when someone's about to move, but they haven't done it, but you can see it kind of coming. So I'll, I'll like call on students. I say, I know that you have a question. I'd say about 75% of the time I'm right, you know, 25% of the time I'm wrong. And the student says, no, I'm not thinking anything. I don't have a question. <laughs> it's not easy though. And you have to work a lot harder than when you actually have their bodies in the room. And you, and you, then you have students actually with their cameras on, because this is one of our challenges anyway. My challenge here is I have very few students who turn their cameras on. Yeah. Can't you, can you, can't you make it a requirement? No, it's, well, um, no, because then I would be, I would be otherwise disadvantaging them here, right? Like there's a lot of reasons that our students may not be able to have their cameras on in terms of accessibility or like there's, they're in a violent household or they're just, you know, there's, there could be other people or other things going on in the background. background. You can have a background that you don't. Virtual see. backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I am trying to incentivize, let's say <laughs> I'm trying to incentivize and invite it, but I, the number of times it's happened is still pretty low. I, I mean, I have a lot of students say, like, I can hear them. Often they're, they'll turn their sound on, but not their cameras. And they'll say, oh, I'm not camera ready. <laughs> I'll say, I know the feeling. I'm not either. But that, that would make a huge difference. That would make a huge difference. Um, and I think it's hard. I, I know I've heard of people who are lecturing to a lot of black boxes. And that's really, really hard. I can't lecture without seeing their reaction. I need to see their faces and make sure that we're on the same page, like, constantly. So if like if if I was in your position, I would plead and beg with them. And I, I would, <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to plead more effectively. <laughs> no, and really tell them, you know, I can't talk if I can't see your face. You have to realize that I don't know what I'm. You know, I don't. I'm nervous. And if if I can't tell, you know, I can tell by the slightest move that you are hearing me or not hearing me or like you like what I'm saying or I don't like I said, if I don't have that feedback, I can't talk. It's like going to a music performance where you need to give the, the, the music, musicians um, feedback, you know, you clap or shake your head. They thrive on that. And, and, and you need to, and the most important thing you need to know is I'm, I'm not fully confident. I know that that's hard for you to understand, but it's true. And one day some of you will be in front of a classroom and you'll know what I'm talking about. You guys think that I know everything and you know nothing. Yeah. And they're like, I actually want to learn from you. Can you believe that? It's true. It's so hard though for our students, right? I mean, it's, it was, yeah, it was hard for us too at some point. Right. Um, but, but I think it's very hard for our students to switch. I mean, also, I think many of my students are still switching from a high school experience to a university experience, right? So they're, um, they're coming to my classes expecting to get like a download of information. Like you're going right. to, there's content you will provide and that's the course content. And that's all that I need to replicate it to a passable level on a test. And that's the goal. And of course it's not what I want. Like I desperately want them <laughs> to, you know, show me where they are so that I could possibly meet them halfway because otherwise the content makes no sense. I worry. <laughs> Sometimes right. it truly makes no sense, I'm sure. But it's it's a real challenge. Yeah. Um, but surely like the experience of grad students versus undergrad students is vastly different that way too. Right. Well, yeah, but actually I 
I mean, I am at Harvard, I have to admit, so it's different, but um, I often find that the undergrads are the best students. They're the most curious and the most lively, and it's the grad students who are more protective and, and, and so on. Right, because they're being habituated into disciplines. Yes, right, exactly. And they're trying to show their expertise and they don't want to admit that they don't know things and stuff. Yeah. But I also, we did, I, I did a thing where part of their classwork is to meet in small groups by themselves and discuss things. And then one person from the group has to speak to the larger class. So I, I make them speak a lot. Yeah, right. So they get used to, and then when they do speak, you know, the way you receive it is say, oh, wow, I never thought of that. That's like, which often it's true, you know, and, and so get them used to, I'm not going to only, this is, this is a back and forth. It's not me, you know, throwing information at you and you need to really readjust yourself. You know, you have to say this to them. So Buddhist studies, do you think that Buddhist studies I mean, first of all, I guess we can ask what is Buddhist studies do and have a little talk about that. But do you think Buddhist studies has an important intervention to make, um, could make an important, important interventions in a broader kind of ethics? In Buddhist studies, it's been very conservative and they want you to study what happened and what so-and-so said rather than how do I transform this into something that's relevant to contemporary issues. But I think there's a lot there that even historically parallels issues. I mean, for example, in my women in Buddhism class, I claim that you can see a lot of feminist sentiments in the early Buddhist writings, you know, modern, you know, early, early pre, pre-modern stuff. It's a question of how you recognize that. You know, Buddhism is a, 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 civiliza- a world civilization just like any other. It's got huge resources of human in, in ethics in philosophy, in, in issues around justice, you know, issues around self-cultivation, psychology, you know, there's ways to handle that, satisfy the kind of old guard in Buddhist studies that you're not just making stuff up whole cloth based on what you want Buddhism to be saying versus really trying to figure out contextually what this meant at, at the time and imaginatively, you know, seen what the stakes were then. And it's not so hard to connect that to contemporary issues. We've been talking a lot about ways to confront racism in the classroom and in higher ed more generally. And what are your thoughts on that and on racial bias, especially ways to ways we can productively counteract racial bias in the classroom? And then also related to it, do you think like you're where we were talking about speciesism really, right? Like this, this focus on this elevation of the human species above all others as the center of everything. Is there a way to connect for our students speciesism and issues of racism? Yeah. So those are really two different questions. Taking the last one first, you know, at the American Academy of Religion, there is a new group, Animals and Religion. It's been around now for a few years. And they have been emphasizing the historical relationship between uh, racism and speciesism in that human beings have treated other human beings like animals or considered them to be animals. And that's the legacy of, you know, slavery in the South, but it's also 
all kinds of other, you know, Irish in the in North America were compared to animals, and basically any kind of human group that you hate, you compare them to an a- animal. For me, and I tried to make this point, and I got into trouble because I wanted to say that, but that's really different than the goal of animal studies. So the animal. In my opinion, the goal of animal studies, at least in part, is to break down the distinction between humans and animals and to see the porousness or the, you know, the fungibility of that, of of that divide. But in the critique of racist history in the United States or, or anywhere, I'm sorry, not just the United States, anywhere in the world. It's just the opposite. You want to reinforce the uh, divide between animals and humans because you want to say that humans of every race are human completely and making one type of human being an animal is violating, you know, your uh, responsibility to treat all humans with dignity as humans. And it's trading on, you know, the idea that, you know, animals are debased and less important. So if someone were to accuse me of being racist because I was treating a person of another race like my cats, it wouldn't be a problem because I, I'm, I'm a slave to my cats. They're, they're not my slave. I'm their slave. You know, I do whatever they tell me to do and I like coddle them and feed them and give them, you know, so the problem of racism and animals is that a there's a presumption that animals are gross and and lower being and then humans treated other human beings like those gross and horrible people so it, there's a connection between human attitudes towards animals and human attitudes towards races for sure but I, I think that the fight against racism has to be fought on different grounds than the fight against speciesism against a- a- animals. So we're all sort of getting up in whatever form we're getting up right now on Zoom or occasionally in front of people in a room. And we're inherently given a bunch of power in doing that. And then there's also a bunch of power dynamics established, baked in already between the people in our room. And so what are we what can we do? to problematize those and make not let them not let the unspoken dominate i think there's at least two things one is in the syllabus like what you're reading and how you construct the class and the other is in your pedagogy and so in the syllabus you know there's a strong push first of all to have a diversity of authors like the identity of who you're reading and the perspectives that you're representing on a particular topic that's not always possible depending on the topic, but to the degree that it is possible, you know, that's a kind of new norm is to, is to try to have diversity in terms of who is writing your sources and also, secondly, the kind of work that they do. So are they privileging the elite or are they privileging, you know, are they looking at other dimensions of marginalized people? So in terms of the way that they study a topic, you know, in Buddhist studies, it's hard to figure out how exactly to do that. Um, it's not very, uh, we don't have a lot of sociological study of different voices. I mean, you know, in like a feminist class, you you do. So when you're looking at, 
you know, the history of women in Buddhism, you are doing that. You know, you're you're looking, you're you're relying on research that's focused on women's voices, let's say, rather than the elite male voices. But we don't have that racially very much. Uh, it's not thematized, you know, between Tibetans and Indians. Yeah, they're different races, or you know, or Indians and Chinese are different races, but nobody has looked at that as an issue of racism per se, uh, or very little. But then the other thing, of course, is your pedagogy. So, so one thing is the subjects that you teach and how you relate the topics to the problem of racism. And I do think there's ways that Buddhist thought and Buddhist ideas do encourage breaking down the self-other, you know, divide, say, for example, and, and all those kinds of things. But then the second thing is your pedagogy in terms of you know, how you um, address microaggressions in the classroom, how you make everybody feel included, how you avoid, um, you know, some students dominating, you know, which tend to be white males, basically, um, and get the other students talking and get them to feel empowered to speak. And that's not, you know, always so easy especially, you know, addressing microaggressions when somebody says something and you go and you don't let it pass, you go, whoa, 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 what did you just say? You know, and, and, um, and get people to, you know, talk about what somebody just said and what, what it could have implied and what the uh, etiquette of, of using language in the classroom is when you're talking about things. Um, you know, that's a challenge for everybody. We're, you know, I'm in the process of writing up a set of guidelines for teachers on just what I just said with some students. I find that the students have really good ideas and they're more sensitive than we are, you know, because as when I was in a classroom, I never would have thought to even think about this, you know, that I have a right to object. And these guys have, and they've noticed a lot of stuff that, you know, that I probably do that, you know, that they, that they take offense at. And so, you know, having student talking to students about this is actually a really, really useful way to kind of, you know, change your, some of your practices. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Janet. It was a real honor and a, and a pleasure and a privilege to hear about your teaching okay, thank uh, you. with posthumanism and Buddhist studies. So thanks so much. Okay. Thanks. So, thanks very much for asking me to do it. You can find more information about Janet and her work on her website. We'll post a link in the show notes. Remember that notes and a full transcript can be found on our website, teachingbuddhism.net. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We would especially like to hear from you about what you think about today's episode. So please get in touch with us however you prefer. Send us an email, a message on Facebook, where we're the host Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks to our multi-talented creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, for managing the technical details and our contributing producer, Dr. Francis Garrett. This podcast is supported by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening and be well. <laughs>